Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the New Zealand Initiative podcast. Today marks 10 years since the founding of the New Zealand Initiative uh, and I'm joined by our Executive Director Dr Oliver Hartwich to talk a bit about the 10 years that have been uh, and what to look forward to. Normally we're very, very focused on all things public policy. We're talking about things that are happening in society, things that are happening in Parliament uh, and the policy debates emanating from that. We don't talk too much about ourselves, so thanks so much for joining us here today, Oliver. Great to see you, Ben. Cheers. Um, we're celebrating. I think you're celebrating with an IPA. I'm celebrating with an APA, but in any case, cheers. 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 There we go. Uh, I th- thought it would be a good idea to get you in here and talk about some of the highlights and some of the some of the interesting things that have gone on as well behind the scenes. Um, first off, who on earth starts a think tank on April Fool's Day 10 years ago? Well, obviously <laughs> a lawyer. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> no, I mean seriously. Um, there was a joint board from the two previous organisations that were replaced, hmm. the New Zealand Institute and the New Zealand Business Roundtable. And um, there, there were lawyers involved, well, uh, one lawyer, and that was our chair, Roger Partridge. And they um, organized the merger, and being good business people, they decided it should be at the end of the financial year. Of course. So that's why 1st of April, I mean, otherwise, I mean, who would start a think tank on April Fool's Day? <laughs> but um, no, it coincided with the financial year, and that's why I think the 1st of April was picked. Anyway, 1st of April, that's when the organization started. Yep. 1st of May was when I started. I mean, they had announced me, but I was still in Sydney. And, um, you I weren't was actually there for the uh, launch, were you? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and this, this is a real interesting thing. Well, um, this is a running gig between Roger and me. What happened was um, I met with the joint boards uh, of the two organizations in, I think it was February 2012. I actually met with... Um, Roger and Tony Carter. Tony Carter was the chair of the Institute. Roger was the chair of the Business Roundtable. I first had a meeting with the two of them. Um, then they kind of gave the green light. And then I had a meeting with the full board in Auckland. I think it must have been late February. And basically they said um, that I was going to get the job. It was all clear. And then they organized the launch event of the initiative in um, Wellington. I think there was another one in Auckland too. And at the Wellington one, at least, Bill English was the main speaker, and they had um, a big screen, and apparently there was a picture of me on the screen. <laughs> and we've, we've hired our new executive director. <laughs> Unfortunately, he isn't here because he's in Sydney packing his things. The ironic thing was nobody would asked me whether I'd wanted to be there. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> if, 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 Off to a good start then. Well, if, if, they, if I'd been asked, I'd probably would have taken a flight across the Tasman. It's not too far. <laughs> just to meet a few of my members and... <laughs> people it would have been quite nice but as it happened i sat in my office in sydney in my old job kind of watching the news from new zealand seeing how that would be received it would have been surreal it was (laughs) bloody surreal i was sitting in sydney and um every time i'm talking about our anniversary it's a a running gag between roger and me i said oh you kind of forgot to invite me (laughs) wow oh no so 10 years of the initiative as you're saying it's um came about as a merger of two organisations, but after 10 years, the initiative really has its own voice, its own personality. Can you tell us a bit more about that from from where you where you started to what you've now built? Yeah, um, <clears throat> well, to be brutally honest here, I didn't know what to expect. Mm. I, I, frankly, I didn't know New Zealand that well. Yeah, I had spent a 
about five days in New Zealand prior to getting my job. And right. I was on speaking engagements, actually at the time with a business roundtable. So uh, I had seen Auckland, I'd seen Wellington, but really just for a couple of days each. Mm. And I didn't really know um, much about the country. I had no connections here in the country. I didn't know anyone. And to be brutally honest, um, it was daunting okay. because I was 36, a foreigner from Australia with a German passport, moving to a country where you don't know anyone and you suddenly leading a think tank. You would have had to get up to speed very, very quickly with our policy settings, right? Yes. Um, but the thing was, I mean, I had done that before. Um, yep. So I'd worked in Australia and I'd worked in Britain. And in each case, I had to kind of find my way in and figure out how the countries tick and what the policy issues are. And and that was possible because I work on specific projects as a researcher, as an economist. And that's possible. But it's a bit different, of course, when you're coming in and you're supposedly running a think tank. So I must admit I was quite daunted by the prospect and mm. I was young I had never actually had an executive role before I, I simply didn't know how that works and um, I think I can admit it now after 10 years <laughs> there was a certain degree of imposter syndrome yeah yeah um, naturally and um, I, I read a lot about it actually at the time it's something that executives never really like to talk about. I mean, every executive pretends that yeah, they were always destined to take that role and so on. Uh, I think actually what's the case is that most of the time you're still wondering, well, why me? Mm. Um, and, and, and am I any good at what I'm doing? And the truth is actually you're probably not quite there yet when you take the job because you learn a lot of things over time and you learn them by doing them. Yeah, but um, I think it's just something that executives never like to talk about and never like to admit. But in my case, I mean, I've been doing this for ten years now. I think I'm over this. So <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so to be really honest, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Yeah. Um, the only thing I knew was what think tanks are and how think tanks work because I used to work them in Australia and before that in London. So I had a rough idea what a think tank is, what a think tank does and what things might, might work and what might not. And um, I had my think tank apprenticeships years in London, a small think tank called Policy Exchange, and that was actually quite small when it started mm. and uh, grew bigger than over the three and a half years I was with Policy Exchange. And I took that experience with me to New Zealand and I had a very much in mind to create a Southern Hemisphere equivalent. Because a lot of the things we did at Policy Exchange were fantastic, I thought. We um, had a big focus on empirical research. We wanted to see what works in other countries and, and learn from that. Yep. And um, we had a newsletter with um, three pieces, um, two oh. series pieces and um, a satirical one. It's almost a carbon copy. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, you know what? I started that Think Tank newsletter in London. That was my idea. Really? And then I copied that and took it with me to Sydney and um, established one like that at the CIS. And I knew that model worked, so I took it to the initiative and now that's insights. So, Well, there you go. See, um, So there were a few things I knew about how to run a think tank and what might work and what kind of research works. And I, I had written my op-eds and I knew what kind of style of publications work. But doing this in the New Zealand context where I didn't know the country was still quite a challenge. Anyway, so I, I arrived here and um, I had a, a chat, of course, with our board, with our members, with staff, with politicians. The issues that we picked initially, they were quite clear and they were self-selecting. Yeah. So I thought housing affordability is one clear issue. Another one is uh, the decline in standards in the, in the education system. And then um, foreign direct investment. The country didn't seem to be too open to international capital and, and lock itself 
away from international capital markets too much. And so I suggested, why don't we do three big projects on these three areas? And then I introduced um, a scheme that I also learned in London, um, the trilogy of reports. Yes. Uh, that was quite a change, I think, for the two organizations um, that were there before. So I said, rather than jumping into policy conclusions, why don't we actually just analyze the stuff first, look around the world for other countries and their ideas, and then in the third report only come up with policy recommendations, because that's another way to underline that we are really into research. Well, I, th I think that's an important part of it, though, isn't it? It's, it's showing, the, it's taking the public with you on this journey. So analyzing the problem, seeing what's happening elsewhere overseas, and then coming out with the policy prescription. That's exactly right. Yeah. The other thing is it gives you three shots at the media. Well, is that, I mean, I mean, that's uh, true, right? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> but it's true in more than one way. Yeah. Um, the most frustrating thing for a think tanker is to write a report, a really good one, and mm. put a lot of effort into that, only to know that on the day you launch the report, the Prime Minister resigns, a war breaks out, or an earthquake happens. Exactly. Because there are sometimes events beyond your control. You might have the best report in the world, but if something else takes over the agenda on that day... You're stuffed, yeah. Exactly. And you don't know that in advance. Yeah. So you might have everything scheduled, and you launch an event and whatever. The day comes, the earthquake happens, and your report enters no one. Yeah. So I thought with three reports that actually minimizes the chance of that happening so you might have one of your reports overshadowed by other events but the other ones at least would have some well and it can be audience. referenced in subsequent media as well right exactly and it gives you a chance to actually build a campaign so yeah. you build a narrative and yep. you establish a credibility in the field and so we did that and so the other thing that i did was um i thought the organization itself didn't have any credibility at the time because we were new nobody knew us the name wasn't established and so on so I thought, why don't we take some more senior people, combine them with more junior in-house staff, and basically piggyback on their reputation. So we did the first series of rep reports on housing policy with Michael Bassett, who was a local government minister, of course, in the fourth Labour government. Big name. Big name. Um, famous historian. Yeah. And we um, combined him with Luke Malpas. Great. Who was a young researcher back then. <laughs> <laughs> ten years, wow! Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Ten years, exactly. <laughs> so Luke was a colleague of mine at um, CIS, and um, I thought, well, bring Luke and Michael together and let them jointly write their series of reports, three of them on housing policy, and uh, including a report on international housing policy experiences where Luke travelled the world for us. And uh, we did all of this, by the way, on a budget mm -hmm. um, because the organization was small and poor. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I mean, Luke traveled to Germany, for example, and he stayed with my parents. Really? Yes. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> so, a hard case. So my parents actually had a guest room in Germany and Luke yeah. stayed a whole week there, which was very um, fun because Luke doesn't speak any German. My parents don't speak much English and they still had a great time. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So um, uh, really, really using uh, those international connections to, to well, basically billet staff. <laughs> exactly, because that's what you do when you're running a think tank on a budget. Yeah, yeah. We that's managed great. to do all of this international research really on a shoestring of a budget, yep. and it became a really good book. Fantastic. So um, that was one thing. The other one was actually um, education. We had Rose Patterson with us at the time, and she worked with John Morris, um, headmaster of Auckland Grammar. Yeah. And then on the um, third series of reports, well, we only had a senior colleague, and that was Bryce Wilkinson. He's still with us, and he's mm. extremely productive and very committed to the organization. So, so knowledgeable as well. Oh, God. Bryce is an encyclopedia of New Zealand economic policy. Yeah. So these were our first three big series of publications, education, housing, 
point like investment, kept us busy for the first one and a half years of our existence and established the credibility of the organization and our reputation as a serious research institute. I think it's so, it's so important to get those early wins up on the board, right? I yes. mean, it's, it's make or break in those first, first few years. Yes. So I thought um, rather than starting with big policy recommendations when people would say, well, who are you? Yeah. Why, why would you tell us what to do? Have you done any research? I thought, okay. We're waiting with the policy recommendations. They will come later. But we're doing the research first, establishing a bit of a reputation. We're building it up, but slowly. The other thing I started, as I mentioned before, the newsletter, um, because I knew this was a really good format and it would work if we played well. Yeah. And um, so we started relatively modestly. I think at the time we had about 800 subscribers. We are now at 6,000. Yeah. And you know what? It's not just that we have 6,000 sub subscribers, but basically it's the whole of Parliament and a lot of very senior people from the Beltway. But that, that said, it's not an elitist newsletter. Anyone can subscribe, and we've got lots of subscribers, students as well. But we are reaching the right people. We're reaching journalists and politicians, and I found this an extremely valuable way of um, getting our views out there, letting people know what we think but, on a regular basis. But it's, it's also a good um, good way people respond to it. Yes. Every, every week we receive emails from people that have read things and that have a view on them, um, you know, Either it's agreeing, disagreeing, or having having another view from out of left field, but it's a very good engagement tool. Yes, and and um, also it's some um, the um, best source of intelligent commentary that you can find in New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's, might be a little biased, <clears throat> but yeah, sure. Oh, well, don't, don't take my word for it. No, seriously, I, I remember a conversation I had with the deputy British ambassador to, oh, sorry, High Commissioner, yeah. to New Zealand a few years ago. He's no longer here, so I can safely say that. Okay, and here he we said, go. He said it was his favorite bit of commentary in the New Zealand medium. Really? Because he said, actually, everything else is so boring here. He was very undiplomatic. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably because Sorry, he understood Patrick. the satire, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, and really seriously, I think it is a really good piece of writing. Yeah. Um, it is actually easily digested. We have three pieces of 400 words each, so you can easily read them on a, on a Friday lunch break. And the idea is actually, we sent this out on a Friday so people can talk about it over barbecue on a Saturday. Yeah. And exactly. also, the idea was, it's always a commentary piece on the issue of the week. That's insights one. Insights two is always something about our work, something about policy. And then insights three, once you have managed to get through the first two pieces, you get a bit of satire. It's, it's a sweet enough. It's a dessert at the end, isn't it? Yeah. Correct. And that recipe has been working for us for 10 years now. And yeah. previously it worked in Sydney and previously it worked in London. I think it's safe to say it works then. Yeah, <laughs> I, I wouldn't change it and I really enjoy it. The, added benefit of all of that is, of course, when you've got young people, young colleagues starting here, they've never written for a bigger audience, before you get them to write a piece for the Herald or the NBR or anywhere else, get them to experiment. Just, just write 400 words for insights. Exactly. Um, it's a I huge think it's discipline a, though, isn't it? Yeah. Like, I mean, getting your ideas all down and sculpting them into, into something that's only 400 words long when your, your stream of consciousness can be much larger, right? Exactly. And actually, my experience is when you're a young writer, um, you've never written for a bigger audience. What you're trying to do is you're trying to put all thoughts you have into one piece, uh, all 97 of them. And <laughs> I mean, <laughs> if you only have 400 words, it's a bit of a challenge. So mm. I should usually say, well, you've got one thought now and try to elaborate on that one and put this into your insights piece. It's a nice discipline. It really is. If you manage to do that in 400 words on one or one and a half thoughts, you've done well. Yeah. So so tell me, coming back to when the initiative was first founded, you said you didn't know too much about New Zealand, but I guess the other thing would yeah, have I've learned been, a bit in the last few years. Oh, of course. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think it's safe to say that, yeah. Um, but I, I guess one of the big things as well would have been sorting out those initial relationships with members um, and with the board and politicians. What did they? What did they make of this? Um, of this German guy turning up to to suddenly lead New Zealand's largest think tank? Yeah, well, it was, it was an interesting um, getting to know each other protest. A bit a process, process, process. Not process. <laughs> Oh, I oh, that. that was a final Freudian slip. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I could sense it, actually. I mean, initially some people say, oh, who is this German? Yeah. And, um, you know, with Germans, uh, there are all sorts of prejudices that come along with Germans. People think that we have a great sense of humor and... Um, <laughs> uh, no, hang on. I'm going to mix it up. Anyway, uh, <laughs> no, I think I had to overcome a bit of that. Yeah. Um, um, and I think I had to get to know how the country ticks. And um, there are I mean, a few things uh, that I had to get used to. For example, when I started here, I kind of gave the same speeches I would have given in Sydney or in London because I was a think tanker and I was used to giving public speeches. So I gave them in New Zealand. And then I got the feedback saying, well, um, that was really refreshing to hear someone speak his mind. And for the first couple of months, I thought it was a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, what I realized a little bit later was actually New Zealand doesn't tick that way. New Zealand is a little bit more um, reserved and um, you, you might not want to speak your mind because you meet again. So, um, okay, I learned that. Yeah, I learned that the um, sense of humor is a little bit more reserved British um, than in your face Australian and I uh, adapted uh, to that. So that worked. Um, another thing was, of course, the two organizations that merged were quite dissimilar. Yeah, um, there's always, I wouldn't say necessarily a conflict, but like a divergence of views. Yeah, they, they, they were divergent. I don't really want to go into the left versus right stuff because it's I mean, so 19th century. It doesn't really help. Yeah. doesn't really help, but safe to say they were quite different. Mm. And so what I did was I visited all the members and told um, the members of one think tank that, of course, nothing would change. And I told the members of the other think tank that nothing would change. And then everything changed, of course. Um <laughs> But they all felt um, taken care of, and uh, I mean, I'm exaggerating a bit. Yeah. But I think that's really what happened. That's so good. basically, you take the members um, along, and you explain what you're trying to do, and you get to know each other, and uh, actually, you develop friendships, um, and and that's how it ha happened. I think um, members got to me got got to know me with my quirks, um, which I do have and sometimes hide. No. Um, no. <laughs> And uh, I, no, I think it really seriously it worked. Yeah. Um, the other thing is um, politicians. So I, I didn't know the politicians either. And I must say I developed uh, friendships actually with members of all parties over the last few it's years. It's important. Yes. Um, I mean, I wouldn't go along with uh, their policy positions necessarily, but I've met some really nice people basically in every party. Yeah. Um, and... Um, that sometimes took a while, um, and not all of this is public and not everything I would like to talk about here, but actually on a personal level, I get on with them. Yeah. and it, I, mean, I think it's a New Zealand way though, isn't it? Yes, um, because actually in all parties you find decent people. You do. And um, that's that's a nice thing actually about New Zealand, uh, how accessible they are. Mm. Um, and, and actually that blew me away when I arrived. So um, my colleagues had ar arranged a few meetings for me in my first couple of weeks. And I must say, I'm still blown away by it. Um, I mean, for, for New Zealanders, it's probably normal, but coming from the outside, I had meetings with the Productivity Commission Board. I had um, meetings with the Reserve Bank Board. I had a meeting with the Deputy 
prime minister and minister of finance yeah. all in my first couple of weeks. And I was 36 and a newcomer in, in this foreign country and they wanted to meet me. And I thought that wouldn't happen anywhere else. If I had been a foreigner moving to Germany, trying to work in Berlin, I guarantee you it wouldn't have happened in the first couple of weeks that you would meet with the Minister of Finance and so on. No, not, not a hope. No, not a hope. But in New Zealand, of course, I mean, that's how New Zealand ticks. Yeah, it really is. And um, I still remember that meeting with the Minister of Finance. Yeah, how did that go? <laughs> this is one of my favourite memories, actually. So I met Bill English, and um, it was a very Bill English meeting. I hope he doesn't mind me saying that, because Bill and I were friends now. The first meeting was very standoffish. So he probably was just as, well, I don't know, careful with me because he didn't know who is this guy. He's, he's a young German, 36, from Australia, <laughs> and now he's running the think tank. And it was a very standoffish meeting, and Bill is someone who can very much keep his cards to his chest if he wants to. Yeah, right? yeah. And that was the kind of meeting. So was he, he putting, you, putting you through your paces, really? Well, <sighs> I didn't know where I was with him, and yeah. he was just asking questions, some kind of probing questions, so how does the guy tick? And then we get, got to this question where he said, okay, so you're new to New Zealand. If you had one shot at New Zealand public policy, what would you do? And uh, frankly, um, I, I didn't know that much about New Zealand, but um, I had worked a lot on local government issues, localism, the stuff that became a theme for the initiative, of course, over the years. And I said to him, I would like to abolish the rate system and introduce a local income tax. And Bill just looked at me thinking, oh, this guy's from Mars or from <laughs> wherever. But anyway, crazy. Wow. And um, Bill actually admitted as much a few years later. I ran into him at a conference in Auckland and um, we had a beer um, at a conference barbecue. And he said, well, you know, um, when I first met you, I thought you were nuts with your local government stuff. But now my advisors are asking me about that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, that's a sign that the, uh, the, the initiative is working, right? Yeah, actually, um, that is the one thing I'm really proud of because yeah. we have changed the conversation on localism and on local government. I, I mean, localism wasn't even known as a term. No. Nobody had ever heard localism in New Zealand um, because New Zealand is one of the most centralized countries in the world. Yeah. And um, I had previously worked on localism issues in Sydney, in London, and when I arrived here, I found a country that is so centralized. I thought this is just ripe for localism and for devolution and for incentives for local government and basically unlocking some local potential. And um, yeah, we'd been working on this for about four and a half years when I had a coffee meeting with um, Craig Stobo. And Craig is um, chair of the local government funding agency, so he's involved with local government and um, he's organizing local government um, debt finance. And um, Craig always got it. Craig completely understood the financing issues and financing needs and problems of local government in New Zealand. And I just sighed to him over a coffee and I said, oh God, we've been doing this for four and a half years and it's really tedious because nobody understands this. And it was one of our more, more depressed moments. And um, then I suddenly had this thought and I thought, oh, hang on, you're running a membership organization. Why don't you take your members to the country that does it best, Switzerland? So I quickly finished this coffee meeting with Craig rushed back to the office and called our chair, Roger, and I said, Roger, I've got an idea. We take no members to Switzerland. And Roger said, what? Oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> to to <Yeah>. Switzerland? <laughs> um, how? Why? I said, to study local government. Oh. <laughs> and, and Roger said, yeah, you can take our chairs and CEOs of large New Zealand companies to Switzerland for a week to study local government. Yeah. Did, did you think it would be very popular? Yeah, Roger thought it was a 
an interesting idea. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then we discussed, well, how, how could we make this work? Because Russia then saw, well, oh, it, it was a good idea to show them how a different country tackles these issues. Of course. The, the issue was really, how do you convince a bunch of business leaders to spend a week on a marginal issue like local government in Switzerland on the other side of the world. I mean, they're, they're busy people. They've got full full diaries. Yeah, so. but what what I suggested was, well, we need one popular figurehead of the doc, of the delegation, mm-hmm. and um, we quickly settled on Fraser Winneray, who was CEO of Mercury, and Fraser's a good friend of mine, and um, he is really one of the most energetic people you can come across in business. And I um, talked to Fraser about it, and Fraser was interested. And he said, yep, happy to lead a delegation. Fraser was friends with Christopher Luxon. Right. And Christopher was at Air New Zealand at the time, CEO. And um, so he said, well, uh, we're going to Switzerland. Would you like to come along? And Christopher, yep, sure, interested in politics and policy. Yeah. I mean, as we know now. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> yeah, he's ruled so, that. And then the rest was easy. Uh, then I approached the rest of the members and said, by the way, we're going to Switzerland to learn about local government. Well, okay, interesting. Uh, and Fraser and Christopher are coming. Right. Oh, okay, working us on up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and suddenly we had a bus full of New Zealand CEOs and chairs representing about a third of New Zealand GDP for a week on local government reform in Switzerland. Wow. And so that was amazing. And then we did this another time, um, two years later, um, almost the same group, again, with Fraser, with Christopher, with a few others, um, 40 people, Denmark and Sweden, for a week. Wow. Also to learn about local government, to learn about dual education, about all sorts of other things that these countries do that we would have never thought of before. Yeah. And we came back, our whole delegation came back with loads of ideas, things we could do differently. And actually, since we were talking about Christopher Luxon, he then became an MP, of course, and his first job in opposition was local government spokesperson. And, I mean, that was just fantastic. Because new ideas. He had new ideas. He had seen it in practice. He was talking about it afterwards, how much actually that Swiss and Danish and Swedish uh, experience had shaped him. Yeah. And um, so that worked. We changed the conversation on local government by taking some senior business leaders and future politicians to other countries. Though we weren't to know that. Exactly. (laughs) So um, we, we did that. That is, that's very, very impressive. I mean, it must have been a logistical nightmare as well, but somehow it worked. It was a logistical nightmare, but yes, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> now, I think that's one of the real important things is um, is actually bringing that international perspective to New Zealand's policy debate. And I think uh, having you uh, as executive director has really allowed that to be to happen in this think tank as well. Because, I mean, being from overseas, you, you're inclined to, th- to think, okay, and compare what New Zealand's policy settings are like with those overseas. Have you found a resistance to to overseas ideas from New Zealanders, from members, or are they keen to learn? Um, yes, at times, but then again, New Zealand is not the only country where foreign ideas are treated with suspicion. Mm. Um, so I've personally now lived in four different countries. Obviously, I grew up in Germany, then worked in Britain for a while, then Australia, now here. In each of these countries, if you come with a bright idea, it might be the brightest idea on the planet, but it comes from overseas. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, they're different over there. Yeah, they do yeah they're different over there. Yeah, yeah. I think, actually, if you're an island nation, it might be even stronger. So mm. I, n- I noticed that, actually, in Britain, the Brits always think they're somehow different. Yeah. Um, I think it might be an island thing. <laughs> <laughs> and in New Zealand's case... Um, New Zealand is actually quite open to new ideas, I think, but um, you need to introduce them. 
um, because we are so far away from the rest of the world, um, it's not so much that we are naturally suspicious of foreign ideas, um, not more so than the other countries. It's just that the other countries are so much further away. Yeah. And so um, I found this actually one of the interesting observations here that New Zealanders, when they actually want to compare their own experience to other countries, they are bound to look at Australia. Yep. They are bound to look at Britain for historical reasons. And then there's not much else. Mm. Maybe Canada, maybe the US now and then. So on the periphery a bit though, isn't it? Yeah. But actually, if you're trying to do comparative policy stuff with countries whose language is not English, it becomes very difficult. Yeah. So I think it wouldn't come naturally to New Zealanders to think, well, hmm. Is there anything in France or in Germany or in Switzerland or in Italy? I mean, I don't know whether there's anything to copy in Italy, but just in case. Um, <laughs> but I don't think it would happen for that language barrier and for that cultural barrier. So yeah. I think it is worth actually tearing down that wall. Very apt. Well, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, there is so much to discover. Basically, what I think is actually all countries in the world are dealing with very comparable policy issues. We all try to get decent people into the teaching profession, for example. Of course, yeah. We have a massive housing problem in many countries around the world. Not so much maybe in Germany and Switzerland for different yeah. reasons, but We've anyway. the incentives, right? Yeah. Um, all countries are dealing with uh, an aging population, with challenges and pressures in the healthcare system. Mm. All countries now in the last couple of years have to deal with COVID. Yeah. So, okay. If we're all dealing with the same stuff, well, why don't we learn from each other? We should be doing this. And this learning can be just to figure out what works. But it could equally be what to avoid. Yeah. And, um, I can't help it. I've, as, as I've said, I've lived in these countries. And because I think once you've lived in them, you can't just get let go. You will always be interested. And in, I still read my British newspapers and my Australian papers, my German papers, some Swiss papers as well, because I'm interested. And of course, um, the few papers that exist in New Zealand. Um, <laughs> sometimes I just check the weather report. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, you should be doing this because there is so much interesting stuff happening. I yeah. get so much inspiration policy-wise from just reading these European papers. Um, it's not just out of a kind of curiosity to see what's happening in these countries, but also to see what, what are they doing? What are they experimenting with? What are the stuff? What are the things that we would like to copy here? Right. Yeah, and I think it also holds a mirror up to New Zealand as well, right? Gives us more of a, a way to evaluate what we're doing. Yes, and, and I think that's what right. the initiative does. Yeah. So we've had quite a few international colleagues actually over the years. We had people here from Canada. I mean, mm. we still have Eric, of course. Yeah. Um, we had um, colleagues from the US, from Brazil, from Australia, from Britain. Um, we had all sorts of different um, nationalities, but also uh, professional backgrounds represented here. I think it actually contributes a lot to a think tank. Yeah, it does. Because different you bring perspectives. Different perspectives, and it leads to different solutions. Yeah, you're quite right. Right, so 10 years of the New Zealand Initiative. It shows no sign of slowing down at all. Uh, where to from here? Well, uh, personally for me, I want to remain here for quite a bit longer because now I think that we have produced a lot of research and a lot of policy recommendations. I would like to see them implemented. Yeah, that's the thing. It takes the time, right? Yes. It, it takes a lot of time to change policy. The first step is to change conversations. We've mm. done that. I think the conversations on education and local government, they sound a lot different from the conversations that I encountered in 2012. Yeah. The next step will be to see a lot of these policy recommendations developed by the initiative over the years implemented. And I've, I'm actually quite hopeful because the conversation has changed so much. 
um, almost regardless of who's in government, we will see some policy changes based on our ideas. And I would like to be there for the next few years just to see how that happens and um, accompany that process. Exactly. All right, Dr. Oliver Hardwich, thanks so much for joining me uh, on this podcast. And uh, to all our listeners, thanks so much for supporting us. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. stay up to date with our latest research, opinions and events, sign up to our weekly insights newsletter at nzinitiative.org.nz.